left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Some people have more appetite for a higher risk investment strategy. Other people want this to be, hey, these are going to be safe, secure returns. I know that the asset is a good one because I would buy it. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy, not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. Hi, I'm Dave Zook from The Real Asset Investor, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. I'm pleased today to have Alex Moore with us. She is the co-founder and principal at Gray Whale Capital, a private equity firm focused on commercial multifamily real estate. She works with partners to secure assets that are tax-advantaged, stable, and will bring consistent returns to investors. Alex, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. You know, we had a great conversation a couple of months ago when we first met, and I'm hoping to repeat that here today. And the first thing we usually talk about is is kind of your journey. How did you get into real estate? What's your financial journey? And how did you get to where you are now? Yeah, I think it's a great question to ask. A lot of folks get into real estate because of wanting to get a secure asset to help make their futures more stable. And uh, that was true for me. I realized that there's only a certain amount of hours in the day, and I can't make more off of those hours by doing my traditional job. So I'm a nurse practitioner by trade. I've done it for over 10 years. It's a very great career, but it's high burnout. I've worked with really intense patients in a lot of settings from inpatient to outpatient. I worked with refugees and immigrants all the way to Silicon Valley with high net worth individuals. And it's super rewarding, but there's not a lot you can do besides more time. So Real estate was a great way to create passive income on the side to supplement that. And now I do that full-time and work with Graywell uh, to secure multifamily assets that allow other investors to put their capital into secure assets. Oh, that's great. So how did you make the transition to doing real estate full-time? That's a really interesting topic for our community because we have a, a lot of people who are in the W-2 and their hope is to reduce hours or transition it and be independent. So how did you do that? Yeah, I think that's a goal that a lot of folks have. And for a lot of people, that looks like reducing hours. And I think that works for a ton of people. 
where they can kind of create supplemental income and then reduce their W-2. If you love what you're doing, that's a great way to kind of prevent the burnout, especially in medicine. For me right now, I'm, I'm full-time. I have little ones at home. So it allows me to spend a lot more time with him. Um, but in the future, I think it's going to be something where I can pick up part-time if I want to. But I made that transition after replacing my income through our investments. And then when that re- came to fruition, I had the option. Hey, what do I do? Do I continue working full-time or do I take this time that's really limited having a, a little son at home? That's great. To, and, and you know that's what you want, right? You don't necessarily have to quit your job. You want the option. You have the freedom to decide, I'm going to quit my job or I'm not going to quit my job. And that right there, that's the freedom everybody talks about. It is financial freedom, but it's the freedom to make your own choices. So did you get there through passive investments or active investments? Combination of both. So I thought the only way to get into real estate was to be an active investor. And that's not bad. It teaches you a ton. So I started out with a short-term rental and small multifamily, so two-unit. And did both in the same six weeks. So I did uh, purchase <laughs> two blocks wow. and then did, you know, I bought it all cash and then did a quick refinance, took that money out and bought a short term rental that needed full rehab. So I knew enough about appreciation to be like, this will be a great way to make the asset worth a lot more by buying it way below market and then it'll have great cash flow. And so I did it as a play against the two multifamily versus short term and quickly realized my risk tolerance is much more aligned with multifamily. And then I realized you could do this passively by getting into large investments as an LP. And now I run my own shop, bringing other people into these investments together. But I didn't really know you could do it passively. (laughs) Yeah, and people don't, right? That's the way I I started actively. And as soon as I learned you could do this passively, I sold everything and went fully passive because that's what I want to do. That's what I think I'm best at. But how did you find passive? How did you figure out, oh, this is something I can do? It was honestly through listening to a lot of podcasts. Then once I found out that that was something that was possible, I started connecting with people who who did passive investment opportunities. We have a few folks through like family offices that have firms they work with and we talk to them. And that's kind of how the, the network branched out. And then also realized that a lot of investors do this passively. And it was kind of a relief because you're like spending so much time on these active investments to find a way to get this much more of a time savings. Yeah. And you know, when I, when I was doing my active, I thought I was a passive investor then, right? I was hiring a property manager to do things for me or contractors, but that wasn't passive at all. And I think that's where some people still think that you can own properties and have it passive. And, and I think that's very hard to do. For those that have figured it out, that's fantastic. But I think you're always ending up being an asset manager. And so when you do passive investing, you hire an asset manager, right, to do everything for you. And so all of your work is up front. And that's what I want to talk about next is the work, the active part of being a passive investor is finding a sponsor, evaluating that sponsor, and then looking at the deal. So can you talk to us a little bit about as an LP, a limited partner, How do you vet a sponsor? How do you find new sponsors? And how do you decide, okay, I'm going to invest with this one? That is such a great question. I think a lot of people think about the deal as the key point to look at when they're they're looking at an investment opportunity. And I have a lot of people when they're charting out, that's really where they focus is how do I get the highest returns? They're thinking, hey, that IRR looks awesome. It's a 20. 
I'm going for it. And I think that's really where it's important to know your sponsor and know their motivations. And then also how do you get a 20 IRR? So starting off, I always ask for a sponsor. I ask about what their experience is. So what kind of assets do they typically invest in? And location, how familiar are they with that location? So market and assets. Then I ask about their track record. A sponsor should be able to provide that for you. So this is either deals that they have currently under holding and what their performance is or closed deals. Or if they are new, a new sponsor, their partners might have a track record. Uh, so that's an important thing to ask for too. So it's a combination of that key sponsor and their partners. What is the experience being brought together? So those are the things that I start with. From there, I ask about their partners. And this includes the people who are co-sponsors on the deal and also their property management. I, a lot of people don't ask about property management. They kind of think of it as the last thing. They're like, eh, we'll stick a property manager on there. After actively managing my properties, your property manager is a key to the performance and executing the business plan because they're really the person who's going to be carrying out the business plan for the property and helping you figure out, is the CapEx coming in where it should be? Are we doing the right construction plan? Are we staying under the numbers? And are we meeting our rent projections? If the property manager is not really focused on that, you won't meet your projections for the performance on that asset. That's great. I haven't heard that before, at least not very often, that you're analyzing or looking into the property manager. That's fantastic. So first of all, CapEx is capital expenditures just for people so everyone's on the same page. That's money that you're spending to improve the property and do some of the rehab and stuff like that. Talk about the property manager. What do you do to analyze or how... If I get a deal and they say, here's the property manager... Okay, great. What do I do? Do I call them and ask them questions? How do I evaluate whether they're any good or not? Great question. I actually recommend asking your sponsor, have you worked with this property manager before? And if not, what's the property manager's experience in that market? Do they manage other buildings in the area that are similar? And have they executed a business plan that you're planning on on doing? So this shows the track record for the property manager, both in market and then also in executing your, your business plan. Another key one, which some property managers will do and some won't, is to help with due diligence. So when you are in the due diligence phase, has the property manager visited the property? Have they done a walkthrough? Do they verify the rent projections that you have and the finishes that you're planning on doing for those units to get those projected rent funds? Because they are in tune with the market. They are placing renters into units. And so you should really know, is this something that's aligned with the market demand? Do you ask anything about like the rehab cost? Is the property manager managing that? Is that a question you ask? Or, or did the, does the uh, sponsor of somebody else doing that? Is that something you address? That's usually bid out with your contracting or construction team. What I usually want to do is have a partner that I've worked with before for that construction and contracting work. That they've done something that is similar to this and they've provided a fixed bid and they've stuck to that or have a plan for if those bids go above what's expected. You don't want someone who is as a sponsor on a deal saying, you know, we'll kind of figure that out. We know that the market's somewhere between 10 to 15K per unit for the type of turn we want to do. You want them to have a partner that's actually said that that's the real cost because that CapEx is really where you enter a lot of risk into a deal if you have significant work that needs to get done on a property. Yeah, that's one of the things I found when I was actively trying to be passive was, you know, my property manager did the rehabs for me. And when we bought the property, he said they'd, they'd cost about five grand 
per unit and they ended up costing 10,000 per unit. So you can see that that was a disaster for the pro form and all the way I thought the property would perform. You had mentioned earlier evaluating a new sponsor versus an experienced sponsor. So there's a lot of new sponsors that have sprung up over the last few years. And that's great. I love to try to give them opportunities. But I also, how do you tell if they're, you know, maybe they have a podcast and they're really good at marketing, but how do you tell if they're going to be a good operator? What are some of the things that you look for in a new sponsor? That Because it's easy, easier with an experienced one, right? Because they have deals they've already done. So talk about a new sponsor. How do you evaluate them? And what are some of the things that they might have that would say, okay, you're going to take a chance with this new person or new group? Yeah, that's a great question. There are a bunch of new sponsors out there that are starting from scratch. And so the biggest thing with a new sponsor is what partners are they working with? So a lot of new sponsors will have a mentor or will have partners that they've they've worked with who are going to help them on this deal. And that's great. You want them to have that network because that really adds the experience part of it and gives them a sounding board. And those people can often be brought in on the deal. So they might be a co-GP or they may be on the mentorship board for that person. So that's a good way to ask for a new sponsor. Another thing is how many years have they been in commercial real estate? Have they underwritten deals regularly? What's their business before this? So what did they do professionally? And how does that play into what they're doing now? So a lot of people will come from a business background and you can ask about what those skills are that they're bringing into this deal and what their performance was previously too, just to have a professional track record. Hey, Love Fielders. This is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up Tribe Vest on YouTube. I'll see you there. Talking about partners, I've seen lately that there are a lot more partners on deals than it seems like there used to be. And maybe I'm just noticing it more because that's something that I'm focused on now. But you know, there's a lot of deals where you come out and, you, and it's from a sponsor you know, and then you, you look at the pitch deck and there's six other people on it. Mm-hmm. So how do you go about figuring that out? Do I, do I need to evaluate each sponsor, each person on there, each different GP? Do I need to have a call with each one of them and evaluate all of them? Or what do I do with that? I think it's based on your comfort level. So if you feel comfortable with the sponsor that you're going with and you've worked with them previously, they've done all their homework on on the other co-GPs. They wouldn't want to get into a deal that they don't want to get into or a partnership that they don't want to get into. The reason I think that you're seeing a lot more people on deals together is because you can take and get into larger assets by being a team. So often this team requires more than one KP. So signing on the debt, you need to have a few people to get enough net worth to be able to sign on bigger loans for bigger assets. Bigger assets tend to be more secure too. So when you're getting into that 100 plus range, it's typically less volatile and you can negotiate for better property management. But for taking down a hundred plus unit, especially in big markets, you're going to need more people into that. And oftentimes what happens is that you'll, when you get the partners together, there's either one or two partners that are specifically assigned to asset management. There's one, one or two that are specifically assigned to acquisitions. And so when you're looking at that team, I always ask, what are the roles of the people that are on this deal together? And how is that going to play out for the lifetime of the asset? 
And you mentioned KP, and we've heard the term GP, which is general partner, LP, which is limited partner. Tell us about KP. A lot of folks, I think, on the passive side don't really know this, but key principle, that's the person who is basically guaranteeing that they have enough net worth that they can sign for a loan. A lot of people refer to this as like the older person. (laughs) So (laughs) someone who's been around for a while, typically has been in real estate for quite some time, and they have had the time in the industry to be able to build up enough net worth to say that they are worth X amount of dollars to be able to secure the debt. With commercial loans, those are typically non-recourse. So that means that no one in the deal can be held liable for the deal's performance because the loan is dependent on the performance of the asset. So that's how most commercial loans are, are done, but they still need a guarantor on the loan. And that's where a key principle comes in. Now, is that key principle? Are they on the hook if the deal goes south? How exactly does that work? And how do you find someone that wants to sign up for that? Yeah, they can be. It depends on your lender. But oftentimes, it's still non-recourse loan for the majority of the holders on, on the deal. The KP may have it. Folks tend to sign up for this because they've been in real estate for so long and they are willing to take a portion of the GP for signing on that debt it's kind of like a bonus for them because they've looked at the deal, they've underwritten the deal, they've confirmed that this is a great one and they, they'll they take a portion of the GP for signing on this. Tip. And that to them is an easy win. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Also, another we were talking about partners and a lot of GPs, as we said now, have multiple partners. And you mentioned that they often, a new GP might partner with somebody more experienced. So last year, we, we saw... I don't know, maybe six or seven deals from one particular sponsor in a matter of weeks. And they were one of those sponsors that trains other people. So you know that they had these deals coming to them from one of their new people and they were co-GPs on that deal. So how do you analyze that where you have a new sponsor who's partnering with a very experienced sponsor, but that experienced sponsor is in six deals right now that they're trying to get going because they're mentoring all these different people. So is that something you take into your analysis or how should we feel about that? Because what I did was I just said, I'm out. (laughs) I'm not investing with that person for a while because it seems like they have a lot on their plate. Yeah. I think that's all about risk tolerance there too. A lot of uh, mentors will help their students get into smaller assets. So somewhere it might be as small as a 30 unit, or, you know, it might be as big as a 75 unit, but it's kind of in that middle range where it is really difficult to get the numbers to be great for property management. So what they might do is have kind of an umbrella property management where their students pick up a few of these deals and then kind of group property management over those to make the numbers work. This is good for geolocated properties. And the reason why they're able to offer that those many deals at the same time is because they've gotten access to probably off-market or pre-listed deals that come direct to the lead sponsor. And then what the students will do is pick up as, as those deals as, as being the lead on that. And for asset management, that would be one of my key questions because the one person, the you know, the experienced sponsor may not have the time to really look over that many active deals at at one time. I tend to like an assigned asset manager for each of these deals. The studies show you typically cap out at three to five properties for one person to kind of manage. And so that's where you start seeing the staff higher up and you get more asset managers brought on to the team. And so that's where you want to know, hey, like, (laughs) what's your bandwidth? But again, personal preference there. You can sometimes get really great IRRs from these smaller deals because 
it's more like a fix and flip model. You're doing it pretty quickly and then you turn it and then you get a, a, a good IRR because you've turned it so quickly. Interesting. So can you give us you know, a few key questions that you ask sponsors every time? Yeah. Every time I always ask, how are you being compensated? I know this is a really common question, but there's a couple of different ways that a sponsor is compensated. One is by the fee structure and the other one is how's the promote splits happening. So there's a couple of different ways and I've seen this happen for different sponsors. Some will waive the fees. So there'll be no acquisition fee, but then they'll do a 50-50 split after a pref hurdle is met. So giving more on the other side back to the GP, less upfront. So it's a little bit less expensive getting into the deal, but then it's more expensive on exit because you're splitting that 50-50. Other ways that I've seen it is that, you know, there'll be an acquisition fee somewhere between one and 2%, and then an asset management fee of typically between one and 2% too. It also depends on the size of the management group. So I always ask where those fees are going and how those are split up. Okay, you mentioned PREF hurdle. Now, PREF is preferred return, and the hurdle is is how they set that up. So can you explain what you meant by that? So the preferred return is how much is given back to the LPs that has to be the met on their returns before it becomes a split between the GP and the LP. Sometimes there'll be multiple PREFs. So you might see some deals will have you know a preferred return of 8% on your money. And then after that point, there's a 70-30 split, but then if we hit 10%, it might go more to the, the GPs, so they might get a 60-40 split. So there might be multiple hurdles. You typically see this with bigger groups, ones that have been around for a long time, and you often see lower pref hurdles, meaning they get those splits sooner. Folks who are kind of in that middle ground, who've had a couple of deals, they tend to be a little bit more generous on their press because they aren't huge. <laughs> so we still have a small investor pool that's very loyal and they just want to keep giving returns to them so that they are incentivized to keep coming back. Okay. And when you're evaluating a sponsor, is there anything that you uncover that you might look at and say, no way, this is an automatic no, this is easy, I'm leaving, see you later? A hundred percent. I think if your sponsor is not able to be transparent about the risks on the deal, and they don't have a mitigation plan. So if they start getting defensive about risks about the deal and what the plan is to mitigate those, I'm out every time. <laughs> I won't partner with people who don't have a plan because if you are just hoping and praying things are gonna go well, they won't. If there's one thing that real estate is true about is that it is an asset. So it is kind of hard to screw up. <laughs> if you don't plan for the bad, you're not gonna be able to mitigate that. So that's the first one. And the next one is if they are dodging any questions, if there is a response where it feels like they're not being transparent or they can't give you more information. So if you say, hey, I have a question about this deal. How did you come to the number that you're calculating here for exit cap? And they aren't able to give sound reasoning on entry and exit and how they're doing the slip between those, those years, then I think you really should get out. Okay. And just to add to that, there are plenty of sponsors out there. So if one gives you a funny feeling, move on to the next one, right? You don't have to feel obligated to invest. That's what I try to tell people. But I, I want to move on from the sponsor evaluation to the deal, right? Because now we vetted the sponsor. We think they're great. We're confident in them. They send us a deal. What do we do then? How do we evaluate the deal? You talked about the exit cap. So if you could explain that a little bit. But other than that, how do you evaluate a deal and decide you're going to invest or not invest? So... Especially with today's market, the caps are going to be really compressed. And part of that is because of inflation. 
and the lending terms are really aggressive right now. With the report that just came out from the Federal Reserve yesterday, I I think it's really key that you ask about your debt and how that's structured for this deal. Because a lot of people are putting bridge debt on these buildings because they're doing very competitive terms. Bridge debt offers you really competitive terms with interest-only periods, uh, high LTV, and a low loan. But there's typically a cap rate float, and that is market-dependent. So you really need to make sure if there's bridge debt on this building that the cap rate float is not too high where the building won't perform at that higher cap. And then the other thing you want to make sure is that the base of that rate is low enough so that you're entering at a point that makes sense. And then the top of that that interest rate is still a good performance metric. So I think specifically now, that's something I would really ask about with bridge debt. Agency debt is your long-term debt, and that's going to be more stable because you have a long-term on it. Typically, it's 10 years. So that gives you a locked-in rate and really hedges against that inflation. So that was the debt. What are some other key metrics that you look at besides debt and maybe the entry and exit cap rate? IRR is another one. And I always ask how we calculated that. The ways that you can get more aggressive on IRR are a few different ways. And I don't think that everyone knows this is I ask about GP contribution. I want GPs to be contributing to the deal. But if they're contributing more equity to a deal. So if you see that they're contributing 20% to a deal, that actually increases the IRR on the deal because there's less of that LP contribution. So it's less expensive. So that IRR can be jumped because of that. It's not bad. It just means that, hey, this might signal that this deal needed more equity on the GP side in order to make it work. Another thing is that if you get the IRR all of a sudden changing... (laughs) I've had this before too, where there's like an initial IRR that's projected and then you're, you get a, an update and you're like, the IRR jumped. You're like, what happened? So really, I ask that too. If any of the numbers change, I'm like, I really need to know the information there. And it might be they had a rent adjustment that they weren't expecting, but make sure those rent adjustments are reasonable for the market because you don't want them projecting something that the market can't sustain. And are there any metrics that if a number comes up in a certain way, again, similar to the sponsors, that it's just a, a no-go, like you're just, you're out. I think if you're over-aggressive for where your rents can go and it hasn't been confirmed by your property management team, that's really a no-go for me because it's a business that you're buying into. And so if that NOI is not something that is easily achievable, I'm out because it's going to be a projection at that point and, and possibly just an appreciation buy. And that's to me, not anything that I, I would go with. Another thing is day one, your assets should cash flow. I'm not about putting my money and being like, let's do a quick flip and pray someone else buys it <laughs> more, more than we spent. So cash flow is a, another thing is it should cash flow and be able to sustain its debt service at a fairly low economic occupancy. So when you're looking at a building, you should always test it and stress test it to see how low can your occupancy rate go and it still maintain debt service. Excellent. Those are some great answers. So I want to ask also, you you work with a lot of investors. So I assume some of them are, are first-time investors. How do you get the courage to send your check or send that first wire for $50,000? How do you make them feel comfortable with that? And what, what's that process? Because that that's a, you know, people get to the place where, okay, I, I want to invest in a deal. And then, you know, that's a lot of money to send to somebody you might have talked to once or twice. Yeah, it is. I feel that way. I think, honestly, the reason why it's so important for people to understand the LP and GP side and, and to invest on as an LP is to understand the limited information you're given. We're sending a check, which is like a pretty big 
commitment. And asking your questions, feeling comfortable with a sponsor, and then knowing the deal fits what you feel comfortable with. Is this something that you would want to invest in? Some people have more appetite for a higher risk investment strategy. Other people want this to be, hey, these are going to be safe, secure returns. I know that the asset is a good one because I would buy it. So some of the higher risk ones could be more of your like dirt cheap, really low occupancy. You just fill that sucker up and you're going to make some great returns. That's a higher risk in my opinion. Some people want that and you're going to make some great returns. I personally am super conservative and would make me, make me feel uncomfortable. I wouldn't want investment to pitch that deal to my investors. So I think as long as the investment structure aligns with you and you align with the sponsor and you feel comfortable, it should never be an amount of money that you wouldn't feel comfortable saying, if I lost all of it, I would be broke. That should never be. And that's why part of why you have to be an accredited investor is because this isn't going to be a life-changing amount of money, but certainly it is amount of money that your sponsor should feel great ownership over and uh, should feel like they, they're taking care of it. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So talk to me about Gray Whale Capital. What is it? What do you do? Are you a GP on deals? Are you bringing deals to your investors? Talk to us a little bit about Gray Whale. Yeah. So I'm a GP. What I do is I work with partners across the nation um, to get into large multifamily assets that are secure and tax advantaged. So these ones follow my investment principles. They're working with good partners who have good track records, work with good PMs, and they are in markets that are growing and that aren't iffy. <laughs> and so I'm a pretty conservative investor. I want good returns, but I'm not going to be shooting for that 20 plus IRR in order to like get rich quick. This is something where my money is going to be growing and stable and then really getting the tax benefits there. And so that's what Graywell does is we, we acquire those 100 plus unit buildings usually in major metros and Texas triplex, uh, Phoenix area, Salt Lake City and Denver. We may expand into Carolinas and Florida if we find the right partners to go there. And then we work with accredited investors. Usually they're working professionals, uh, just like I was, you know, up until July of last year. And uh, typically in the tech medical sector, and we have some small business owners and and lawyers who are in, in our pool too. But these are people who are looking for an alternative investment outside of the stock market, especially with today's market. Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's something right now. That's awesome. So the last question I always ask is, what is a great podcast that you listen to and that you could recommend to our listeners? You can give me more than one if you want. Well, thank you for giving me more than one because I, I uh, <laughs> listen to so much. I think it's something where you don't have a lot of time to read when you're you have little ones at home. So I love listening to The Fort with Chris Powers. I, I think it's a great one. He talks more about business and real estate, the two together. I also like Acquired. I feel like that's a, a great business pod- podcast as well. And you know, bigger podcasts is always really inspirational for people who just are, are trying to learn about what is real estate, but that's very active investing focused. But I think it has a lot of great inspirational stories for people as well. Excellent. Thank you. I'll put those all in the show notes. And the last thing is, if listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? So the best way to do that is through the website, graywellcapital.com. We have a connect with me. You can also email me directly at alex at graywellcapital. I have a couple of resources for people if they're looking to compare deals by deals. It's pretty easy. It's a spreadsheet, but it gives you key questions to ask and lets you kind of compare, hey, is this deal aligned with my investment goals? So if you want it, feel free to drop a line in the connect with us like deal analyzer, and I'll send that on over to you guys. 
Excellent. That's fantastic. We're always looking for tools that'll help our community become better investors. So I'm sure you'll have several people uh, joining you on that, myself as well. That's awesome. Thank you very much. It was great having you on the show. We really appreciate it. And we'll uh, talk to you again soon. Sounds great. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate it. We would like to introduce one of our trusted partners, Ashcroft Capital, to the left field investors community. At Ashcroft, they focus on capital preservation while still having upside potential through their value-add funds. They are proud to announce their second fund, the Ashcroft Value-Add Fund 2, is now open to investors. The Ashcroft Value-Add Fund 2 has been created with one singular purpose in mind, to reduce risk to investors. The Ashcroft Value-Add Fund 2 will continue to use the same conservative business plan Ashcroft was founded with acquiring quality multifamily assets and offering value-add opportunity in strong performing markets throughout the country. To learn more about Ashcroft Capital's investment criteria or about the markets and properties they are targeting, please download their latest AVAF2 Frequently Asked Questions Guide at ashcroftcapital.com slash leftfield. That's ashcroftcapital.com slash leftfield. That was a great conversation with Alex. There's a few things that really stuck out to me. And, you know, she quit her W-2, which is always nice to hear someone gaining that financial freedom. It's not about quitting the W-2. It's about putting yourself in a situation where, as we talked about, you have options. You can reduce hours. You can quit your job. You have options to do what you want because you've found a way to be financially free. doesn't mean you don't have to work anymore. It doesn't mean you don't have to continue to build your wealth. It means now you get to choose what you do. And I think that's pretty powerful. Some of the new stuff that came up, evaluating the property manager. I know we've talked a little bit about that before, but you know, usually we're more focused on evaluating the sponsor and that is the most important thing. And that's the thing we do the most. But to dig a little deeper when you're looking at a deal, and find out who the property manager is and and some of their experience and all that. That was a great idea. I'm going to start focusing a little bit more on the property manager when I look at deals. So I appreciate that conversation. Also, when you're talking to the sponsors, you know, we say, don't be afraid to ask them any question. And that includes, how are you compensated? That's important to know exactly how they're getting compensated on these deals. And if they're afraid to tell you or they waffle, that tells you something right there, which dives into the next thing. You know, she had a couple of automatic no's when she's evaluating a sponsor. And some of that was if they dodge questions like, how are you paid or other questions, or if they're not transparent. As we say all the time, there are plenty of sponsors out there. You don't have to feel obligated to hook into one and invest with them. But if they're being dodgy, if they're not being transparent, if they're not willing to answer questions, then move on to the next one. There's plenty of people that are looking for your capital. So only invest with the best, only invest with quality people, And Alex gave us a few more ways to figure out who those people are. So really appreciative of her being on the podcast. And we'll definitely uh, be talking to her again in the future. And we'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. 
This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.